Over the years, I've encountered criminals that have used some very creative tactics in order to scam and extort their victims. Their objective is to covertly obtain information from individuals and businesses that they later leverage for financial gain. Today, I'll be talking to my producer, Adam, about how difficult it is to stay a step ahead of these highly advanced criminals and why the business of espionage is so lucrative. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. I guess first off, just explain to me what is industrial espionage? In very simple terms, it's about trying to obtain a competitive edge over your competitors. So um, people, I mean, it sounds so spyish and it's really not, but um, so it's like um, somebody will steal something from a, a company and they'll either be paid by that, by the competitor company in order to get information or uh, they will steal something and then try and sell it to a competitor. Obviously, for example, IP, somebody's IP at, um, I'm going to use an example here. I'm going to, I'm going to say Porsche. So Porsche obviously is a huge company, very known throughout the world. So if they have, they're designing a new car, and this is an example. They're designing a new car and they've got this amazing piece of technology that they have created and only they know about it and it will make the Porsche go 20 miles quicker or whatever it might be. And um, then somebody within the industry that's a competitor will either steal that information and go sell it or they will be asked by somebody else to kind of go undercover and gain that information and then give it to the competitor. And by they, are you talking about some kind of operative? Are you talking about an actual company? It might be, say say if I was on the wrong side of the law and somebody knew that I could do undercover work and they needed me to go in and infiltrate, I suppose is the word, infiltrate the other company gain the information that's private and secure, and then give it back to them. It's kind of just stealing somebody else's ideas for, for money for to give them a competitive edge. Would you say, and I know we can't get into any specifics, but I mean, are there companies out there that are household names that we would recognize that are actually hiring people to sort of steal proprietary ideas? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, it's been around for a long time. And so I'll give you an example of my client. So I have a client and very, very hugely successful mining company. And the Chinese want to steal information from that company, from him all the time, because it will give them a competitive edge. So we would do things like we would go into their boardroom and anywhere that the board was going to be, we would make sure we would do a complete bug sweep 
And then we would take their phones and do jam their phones before they went into meetings. And then we would often do a, a board meeting on a jet. So what we would do, and this was a, a this is a very true story. So we were asked to go bug sweep the private jet, the owner of the company's private jet, because they were going to have their annual board meeting on there. Because, you know, you're in the air, it's harder to get Wi-Fi, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so we did a whole bug sweep of the jet. And then the owner said to me, oh, the meeting's been cancelled. We're not doing it till tomorrow. So I was like, okay, great. Well, now I need to secure the jet because we've just swept it and it's clean. But if you're not going till tomorrow, I can't just leave it. And he was like, why not? It's in a hangar. The hangar's secure. And I was like, yeah, exactly. The hangar's secure. But do you know who the maintenance guy is who's going to come in tomorrow? Do you know who the cleaner is who's going to come and clean the jet? And he was like, well, they're, no, they're, like, they're nice people. Exactly. We're dealing with the Chinese. Who's the lowest paid person on your company? The cleaner of the jet. Okay. So who's a really easy target for industrial espionage? Because somebody could go to them and say, you know, here you go. Here's $50,000. Can you just put this on that plane when you go and clean? And so that's a kind of, of um, way of, of trying to prevent it because people are trying to, industries are trying to steal off people. If I could, I would name a whole heap of people that this happens to and, and they are party to. You know, it's, it's a nasty world when you're trying to make money. We would recognize these names. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the everyday names, the household names. And how much of... Your job, I mean, you're because essentially you're doing counter industrial espionage. Exactly. Yeah. How much of that is just trying to make sure that there's not surveillance on a company? That's the main part because you're trying to prevent, obviously. So you put the things into place to stop a competitor being able to do this. But that's getting harder and harder because obviously you don't have to be in a room to be able to bug a room anymore. You can bug a room from miles away. Um, you can get off a plane and you'll say I landed in China tomorrow. My Everything could have been copied off my phone, my laptop. So, you know, when you go over to, to countries where you know this is likely to happen, we do everything clean. You don't take any old of your laptops or any phones. And so it's all about prevention, but obviously it's not always possible to prevent. You always can have the the bad apple, I suppose. And I did a job fairly recently. In fact, it was while I was in, yeah, I was in America and I had to fly. The client was in Australia. And basically they had designed a, it was an energy company. Energy, it was trying to extend the battery life on an electric car. That's what their, their product was. And, um, and it's not Tesla. And um, so we went over because they had found out that their product that they had made, that they had the IP on, had become public knowledge. And that's all they knew at that point, that it had become public knowledge. And so we went in to try and firstly locate where that had come from and then minimize what the damage was going to be afterwards because it was now public knowledge. 
And it was, it was actually a really fun job, but we had some key players. So we start off by interviewing the company and it's a huge company. Lots and lots of people work there. Did they have any suspects? We went with the board and some of the board are now suspects. And that's a really hard thing to tell a company as well. Like there, you know, some of your senior guys could be suspects in this. So we have to treat you all so differently and individually. And, and that doesn't normally go down well because it's like, how, how, how can you accuse the board? Well, because at this point, I don't know who it is. And going into that, when you're sort of setting up the preliminary layout of how this is going to go, I mean, do you think like a CEO of a company or, or, or top management ever considers that? that it, it could be the person sitting right next to them? I mean, I think that, no, I think that they like to think it's more of a junior level because, you know, these guys working together on a daily basis. But I go in initially with, it could be anyone. It could be anyone within this company. And then we slowly break down from, and I interview people and we interview them under really strict guidelines and really strict processes about, you know, going out of that interview and discussing it with other people. We know that happens because it's human nature. But then we literally start to break down the process of who it could be, who becomes a suspect. And that can take a long time when you're dealing. And, and obviously, you've got personalities involved as well. So it's like one guy, the CEO, says, oh, I think it's so-and-so because... And then the CFO said, oh, I think it's so-and-so because, and you're like, okay, well, let's not go on personal opinions. We need to try and base it on evidence. And so we eventually get a list, um, a hit list normally of who it potentially could be. And then we work out the process of interviewing, whether we interview them, do we put them under surveillance? I mean, there's so many variables to how do we get to conclude that it's this person and this particular job in Australia, we had a hit list and one guy was at, had actually left the company very abruptly and we he was on the hit list. So we did some fake internet stuff because we knew he was a car fanatic because it was a car company. And we eventually got him to reply to our operative who was undercover and start talking about what was going on in the company that he worked at. So he was he was becoming hotter and hotter on our hit list because he was very freely giving information to somebody he didn't know. We actually resulted in having a meet with him over coffee and getting him to disclose lots of information about the company. At this point, we had, had still not worked out who it was or got the evidence to say who it was. And then we found that the information had been placed in a car magazine and so we now had a picture of the private information in a car magazine. So what we then did is we looked at the picture because we wanted to try and identify whose desk the document was on when the picture was taken, because that would also help us. So that sounds really straightforward and easy, right? So we're now looking for whose desk it's on. Bearing in mind, we have just a picture of a document on a very white, normal-looking desk. So we're going to find this desk. Easier said than done. And it was, in this particular company, it's a needle in a haystack because there was hundreds of desks in offices that looked exactly the same. 
And this was a document that a lot of people would have access to in the company. No. So that's the that was the point. Not many people would have access to it. So that helps you narrow the field a little bit. Well, it does, but it's you've also got to work out who has we know who should have had access to it. So they're suspects because they had access to it. So therefore they could sell it. Now we've got to work out who might have stolen the access, which is obviously what's happened here. But now we have to work out whose desk it's on. So the people who have access are suspects. So we we start looking at their desks. But one of the things that we noticed when we examined the document and the picture was there was a tiny, tiny pinhole, a drawing pinhole on the desk. So it was like, well, okay, if we can find that drawing pinhole, that will identify the desk. And I mean, you've got then got a problem because maybe he didn't use his own desk. Maybe it was a different desk. Maybe it was the desk that it was the office it was stolen from and he just put it down, took a snap, put the document back. But it's all about trying to break down the layers and do the investigation. So one night the team, and we were exhausted We because this is serious stuff and it, you have it really, you know, the client wants this resolving really quickly because of the financial implications, what else is going from the company. This was by chance because the person who stole it was stupid, to be fair. So we spent the whole night, I think there was a, near on a thousand desks. So we went in as soon as the office closed with one, one member of staff who was the CEO actually, who was aware of everything. And we kind of ruled him out. And we examined every single desk for a drawing pin size hole. We found the desk and therefore we knew whose desk that was. And it just happened to be that he was our prime suspect. So we went and knocked on the door and interviewed him. He admitted it because I think having a f- there was a few of us knocked on his door. It was late at night. Therefore, he was obviously dealt with accordingly. Um, I don't think they reported it to the police. And that's, I mean, it is a criminal offence. But I think people also try and brush stuff like that under the carpet a bit from company perspective because they don't want any bad publicity and they don't want someone to know that they've not secured documents and IP. So a lot of the times they they just actually fired the person. Then that particular company had a concern because they'd previously fired somebody for something similar and he had come back with a, a gun and had threatened to shoot the board. So then for for us, the next part of it was making sure that everyone was secure, that, that everyone was safe, that people's houses were secure and safe. And yeah, we had a really good result in the end. And they get to know where their weaknesses are, which is always something that when we do an investigation, it's about finding what's wrong, finding what's right too. We always say, you know, that's just as important. But then once we've found what's wrong for the make recommendations to make it right. So in this case, the guy sold the information to a publication or a company? Both. So he, and the problem that he made, because he thought that, and he was a a car fanatic. So once he'd sold the information, he thought he was so cool that then he made it public record to a publication. And it was like, well, there's your, there's your mistake right there. Um, because if 
that hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't have, we would have found him because he wasn't the brightest spark, but you know, that he made it easier by doing that purely for us to see the actual document that he stole, because we didn't know that, we knew that the information had been taken out of the company because the competitors made comments about it. So that was what started everyone being, hmm, this is a bit weird. But the fact that he actually sold it to a publication and made comments online about it gave us the opportunity to see exactly what he'd taken. So it's the same old, you know, criminals aren't always that smart. And sometimes the criminal not being smart is what catches them and helps us. Yeah. In that situation, your your guy was a little bit brazen and that he he wanted to brag about it. And he, it seems like he got quite a bit of value out of leaking that information if he was able to sell it to a publication then also a competitor. But when you do find out, obviously the guy's let go, but is are there criminal charges that are then brought on him by the company? They have an option and we will only, you know, we can't do anything criminally, but we advise them and, and write out what kind of offenses they're committed and what the evidence is that's being gathered and that's one thing that when we are doing investigations we're very mindful that even though as a private person we can't we can't go arrest anyone we don't have those powers we can't you know say this is going to a criminal court but what we are mindful of is making sure that the file and the investigation that we do is exactly as it should be done for police because if at any point the client makes a decision to go to the police with anything that we've found, it's all done and, and evidentially it's there and there's not going to be technical issues with court or, you know, you talk somebody into giving a confession. It's all, and I think that's a, that's the good thing about being ex-law enforcement. You understand that. And it's like disclosure, you know, I always say, don't write anything down unless you really have to because that's disclosable and everyone's like writing notes and then drawing doodles on their notes and say, oh, that can go to court. So let's not do that. But um, it's just being mindful. So in that particular case, I don't think that they took any criminal action against him for the reasons of let's not highlight that this has happened to us. But ultimately, what it comes down to is you're leaking information, you're giving a competitor an edge. So when you do kind of come to that point in an investigation where you figure out what has happened, does it then become a civil matter with the competitor? Yeah, I mean, that that normally is the case um, because they, you know, they go in to say, we didn't know it was protected property. Unless you can prove that it was actually the competitor who hired the person, which is when I talk about China, it's a very different ball game. So if you can prove that, then obviously you can deal with that. But it's actually the criminal charges would be against the the person who, who carried out the act. And and the sad thing is that people don't take take stuff to court. And that's across the board, really, for me, because organizations want to keep things quiet. They have stakeholders, they have shareholders, and anything that kind of highlights we haven't done our job properly, which is really what's happened. And when we did background checks on this particular person, it's like, how has he even got a job here? Like there was there was some dubious stuff that was going on. But I mean, obviously, that's not always the case. Sometimes you, you've got no background check to go off. So ultimately, the, the objective is going to be more to figure out who the person is, 
within the company that's leaking information and make that stop. That's more the objective than trying to sort of recoup any any sort of money because of the leak. I mean, there has been cases that they actually charge, um, but it, it on something that scale, then it was probably more financially viable for them to keep their mouth shut than for them to get bad press. And again, I'll talk about my client who is the mining client and you know that their biggest threat is China and their tapping and bugging meetings gives them information that they need in order to get lower costs for when they're buying their iron because you know what China you can make everything a lot cheaper so if you're listening to somebody's sophisticated mining plans and um, business plan and you can copy that and then make it a lot cheaper, then that's your competitive edge. So that's one of the things that happens a lot with the Chinese. You know, that's why they are so good at what they do with regards to listening into information and, you know, putting somebody on you the minute you get off a plane and, you know, they do all of that stuff. And so we have to counter all of that stuff. The problem that you have is advising somebody that may be one of their staff. We have to treat everyone the same. And, you know, you've got people who are like, no, that why? He's He's been my pilot for 50 years. Oh, yeah, okay. And um, I, had a, <laughs> I had a very random kidnap case. So I was speaking at uh, an event for the top 5% wealthiest people in Australia and we were speaking about security and protection and we were in a room and there was this little lady at the back of the room and I remember her really clearly because we're in Sydney so it's it's not it wasn't boiling hot but it was hot and at the end of the conversation uh, you know questions and answer moment she put her hand up and she said do you do kidnapping yeah we will investigate kidnaps so she said, oh, we've got one in our family. So I immediately went, let's talk afterwards. I don't want to have this conversation in a forum of people. And I remember her really clearly because she had bright yellow Wellington boots. I don't know what I don't, we call them Wellington boots. I don't know what you call them here. But um, I was like, that's really random. And so I went and chatted with her afterwards. And she said that a cousin to her had been kidnapped and they were receiving ransom notes. And so I was like, okay, well, this is a police thing. Like, I don't try and be a police officer. I'm not trying to do their job. And she said, we don't want to go to the police because of the name of the family and we don't want the press. So I was like, okay, well, we need to get on this really quick. When was the person kidnapped? Seven years ago. Seven years ago and you're just telling someone now? Like, so immediately alarm bells were ringing. I'm like, mm, this does not make any sense. So I said, okay, well, let's let's talk. And we established who had worked at the company. And straight away, I'm thinking, this is all, this is all a fake. Somebody somewhere is receiving money, pretending that they've been kidnapped. And, and, and it's an in, it's an internal thing at this huge, super famous family. And so eventually we start looking into it and the 
accountant has been with the company and the family for many years. So they were a trusted source. The lawyer had been with the family for many years, so it was a trusted source. And so we ended up asking for this person and they were paying. They'd been paying out for seven years to the alleged kidnappers, the accountant and the lawyer had. And so um, we got a proof of life off the person and they were allegedly in Thailand. And when I started looking really into it, I was like, this is the lawyer. This is the lawyer and a member of the family who he knows, who basically has gone overseas to have a fun time in Thailand. And it's an internal thing. So when I told the family of my thoughts and my views about this, they were not very happy because he was such a trusted person. So we organized for us to have a conversation with the lawyer and the accountant, because the two of them, they hadn't troubled the rest of the family, but the, the family were aware. And they'd just literally been paying out for seven years to somebody who I still believe was not kidnapped. And when I pushed to, to bring the police in, they didn't want to bring the police in. And the minute I asked to speak to the lawyer and the accountant, that was it. My involvement was cut off. So this person in the family would would have to not only be complicit in this, but they'd have to be working with and and probably benefiting from extorting yeah. their own family. Yeah. So in this case, they had not seen this family member in seven years. Yep. And it was a distant, it was a cousin. But what I'd establish is that the lawyer, and he had worked for the family forever, you know, he was the go-to. But the lawyer had, in my background checks, had established a connection with this family member years ago, which was not a surprise because they were all kind of connected to him. But then, I mean, I never proved it because I got cut off. But my absolute belief was that the lawyer, possibly the accountant, and this family member had concocted it themselves and had been paying themselves really for seven years out of the family business and the family just took it as being this is what's happened and it was only I think it was purely by chance that she happened to be at this seminar that I was speaking at that triggered her to say is something wrong and now in a situation like that and and I don't know how much you can say about this or even how much you know but I mean was there like some actual theatrics going on between that was sort of orchestrated between the lawyer, we'll call him cousin Greg and uh, the family to like say, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to let him live for X amount of time, but we need this hundred thousand dollars or, or whatever. But the family never took the sort of measures of going, well, we're, we want to try to swoop in and rescue them or, or whatever, or pay like an ultimate price. There was definitely the, we're going to pretend that this is very real. So there was proof of life sent. There was a change of accounts. So this week it needed to go into the Hong Kong account. Next week it needed to go to the Singapore account. I mean, it was very, very real. And I think initially the family were very involved and, you know, they just passed it over to their trusted sources and were like, deal with it. And I think the the lawyer actually also knew that that would be the case. The lawyer was so ingrained in the family and had been with them for so long. I got the feeling that he kind of 
knew that he would be handed over the reins. And he said, you know, let me deal with this. It's too distracting. And also knew that they wouldn't go to the police because of, A, the distant relative, not that it wasn't like the the heir to the to the family. And B, again, didn't want bad publicity. But yeah, he definitely organized the whole nine yards of this is how much we need. And if you don't send it, there'll be no proof of life pictures anymore because there'll be no... And the proof of life pictures were real. Like they were with a newspaper, you know, the typical spy kind of movie shit. And they were receiving them all the time because that was the first thing I asked when the lady spoke to me about it. I was like, have you got any proof of life? And she was like, yeah, we get proof of life like every month. Okay, so whoever's got this relative has got them alive. So that's a good starting point. But when I pushed and shoved the lawyer, that was when I was like, you're done. Yeah, and you feel the resistance and then you kind of, that's sort of your answer of you, you sort of know who's responsible. Yeah, and I actually went to the family and like to this lady. And was she crazy? Yeah, definitely. But I went to her afterwards and I said, look, I really believe it's this. But again, he was so ingrained in the family that no one was going to go anywhere near him. And I think that's probably what he knew. So I think he'd paid himself quite a nice sum over seven years with with Cousin Greg. Whether it's extortion, a ransom or stolen information... These criminals do whatever it takes to get ahead financially. Every year, they get more advanced, and we work harder to stay ahead of their schemes. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.